Amen, and good morning, and I wish to you also a happy new year. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16, and we're going to read one verse this morning from the Gospel of John, again, uh, John 16 and verse 33. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 16 and verse 33. I couldn't help but note the line in the song that we just sang and how it kind of dovetails with that which I would wish for you, that which I would uh, pray for you, and that which I am certain uh, will be an accomplishment, a reality for you. That is that you would know in 2023 a foreshadowing of our joy through the ages of singing of His love for me. We say, Happy New Year. Nothing wrong with being happy, but many times I've noted a distinction between superficial satisfaction with pleasant circumstances and transcendent joy that is powerful enough for us to even taste of the glory of God in the midst of this our fallen world. And so it is my prayer, it is my hope, and it's really my confident statement that in 2023 that you will know the reality of the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can say that Because even though the world is indeed a a fallen place, difficulties come to us. Jesus himself said that we may have peace because of what? Because he has, he has overcome the world. Read with me, if you will, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We come to the close of 2022, and we can rightfully look back on successes and or failures, but we certainly can look back on the triumph of your grace, of your faithfulness. And it is is of that we anticipate that we will experience in 2023, that you will be proven once again ever faithful, that you will be ever faithful gracious. And God, that you will see us through whatever you have ordained for us. Let us live expectantly, expectant of your joy that will uh, so overwhelm our hearts and our minds that we indeed live as the victors in this world. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't help but 
laugh as the year draws to a close, as I watch uh, 10,223 bowl games, of which none of them make any difference whatsoever. But in the midst of all those football games, there are all kinds of ads. And I see lots of ads for diet plans, exercise programs, gym memberships, and fitness equipment. Now, ladies, I want to tell you that Pelotron is a great place to hang your dirty clothes, okay? Waiting for laundry, okay? And in fact, there's no telling how many calories you'll burn by walking around that thing as it sits in the middle of your den unused. That is, now, I don't know why people accuse me of being sarcastic and cynical at times. I don't, I don't see that in myself really, but it is a good thing to make a resolution, to, to look back, to evaluate, to plan, to biblically succeed in the coming year. But we are indeed frail, are we not? Those resolutions for diet and exercise last until we realize there's half of a chocolate cake, three bags of cookies, and two boxes of candies left over from the holidays. And that diet plan goes way out the window. But I am reminded that Jonathan Edwards, many would describe him as the greatest theological mind that the United States of America ever produced was noted for something that he called his 70 resolutions. Not legalistic, uh, you know, self-made man type of uh, resolutions, but resolutions that he would think through that would help guide him into a gospel-informed, even gospel-entranced way of living his life. He said it this way in, in the first of these resolutions. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good, and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this. Whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. He would go on to write this. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I have done when I come to die. Just some things to think about. You can Google those. You can pull uh, those up. And there are things to, for us to think about as we try to, to, to view our lives in a way that is informed and defined by the Word of God. And so I want to take uh, this 
text we've read this morning, and I want to try to frame for us a way for us to think and therefore a way for us to live that takes into account that which Jesus has said and that which Jesus has done and that which Jesus has promised for us. That indeed, and I say this very seriously, very intentionally, my goal for each of you is to live with the greatest of joy. Now, I can't force that upon you. I, I can't give it to you as a, a packaged gift. But I can tell you the means that God has ordained whereby we may live with joy. And so I want us to look at this. It's interesting. If you think about the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John has 21 chapters. Five of them are devoted to the final hours on the evening before Jesus would be crucified. Five out of 21 chapters, almost 25% of the book of John is devoted to kind of a, a, a single event in the life of Jesus, which he said, in which he said some things to his disciples that were pertinent to them for that moment and applicable to us even 2,000 years later. Something that took account of their frailty, but also his faithfulness. So let's look, first of all, again in verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you. Now there's a question that I think if we're going to understand what's going on here that we should ask, and it's similar to what we asked last week when we looked at the book of Jeremiah and those familiar words, I know the plans I have for you. We're very quick uh, to go into passages such as that and you know, say that, hey, you know, God's got a great plan for my life and it's going to be prosperous and successful and I'm going to be happy and not going to experience uh, uh, difficulties and, and so forth and so on. And if you'll remember, that was a specific word to a specific people uh, about a specific time for a specific purpose that these exiles that were under the discipline of God were there for a reason and God's good plan was to preserve them and ultimately bring them back to be the seedbed, to be, be the environment that would ultimately produce the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, broadly speaking, indeed we can say that God does have a good plan for us. I can say that with confidence. But we need to be sure we understand what we mean and what God intends by that which is good for us. And so Jesus had said a number of things to them that I think are pertinent to us that we ought to pay attention to as we evaluate 2022 and back, in other words, the entirety of our life, and look forward to whatever time God says to you, I'm making you a steward. I'm entrusting to you a certain amount of time and a certain amount of resources, whether it's intellectual resources or material resources or spiritual resources, but I'm entrusting them to you to invest 
for your good, my glory, for the building of my kingdom. Now, the first thing that caught my attention, if you'll go back in John's gospel to chapter 13, Jesus said something to those disciples, had specific application, and again, particularly to two of the twelve. But I think it has relevance even to us. In chapter 13 and verse 21, and Jesus had mentioned this previously, that there would be one in their midst that would ultimately betray him. He would, he would so betray him that he would be given over to the hands of the enemy and he would be crucified at the loss of his very soul. We know him to be Judas. He is the, the ultimate apostate, one who had a certain knowledge of the truth, but in the end he remained hostile to, he remained in rejection of the truth. And then a little later in chapter 13, Jesus says to Peter, the boldest, the most courageous, the one that was the acknowledged leader of the twelve, you're going to fail. You're actually going to deny me. And so it is a reminder to us of our own frailties and our own failures. If you had asked Judas a, a week or two before this time, do you love Jesus? Will you follow him to the end? I believe he would have given you an unflinching, absolutely, I am absolutely 100% committed to Jesus Christ. But we know not only was he not, he never was committed to Jesus Christ. And it's, it is a warning to the church, and we don't, we don't speak enough. Maybe I speak too much about it, but the church in general doesn't speak enough about the danger of falling away. Now, we have made very clear distinctions over the years between uh, a more Calvinistic way of understanding our salvation and a more Arminian way of understanding our salvation. And I have a number of friends that belong to the more Arminian groups. They're Methodist or uh, uh, Wesleyans or uh, many of the charismatic groups, uh, uh, the Church of Christ. And I'll usually say, well, you know, hey, us Baptists can get away with it. We can't lose our salvation, but you can. You need to behave or some, some little smart-alecky remark. But those of us that believe, and I do believe, in the security of the believer should be equally sober about the reality of whether we have been converted or not. There's a sobriety that we need to bring in examining our lives to ensure that we do not fall away. How appropriate it is on this day to do as Paul says we should do daily, to examine ourselves to see if we're of the faith. Now there are a number of ways, and I've outlined some of this before, that you can become an apostate, that you can fall away, okay? And fall away ultimately and finally. In other words, you reveal yourself as, as never having genuinely believed. Never have been converted. Never been born again. 
One of the ways is you can become a moral apostate. That is, I believe everything the Bible says, and I've had people tell me this, that are living in absolute moral rebellion against God and say, oh, I believe everything the Bible says. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, I don't know, but I believe it. But they just choose to live a morally rebellious lifestyle. In whatever area, whatever category you want to identify, they're living in rebellion against God. And then there are those that become doctrinal apostates. I no longer believe the essential truths of the Christian faith. I no longer believe that Jesus is the Savior. I no longer believe that he's the virgin-born Son of God. I no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God. Any of these things, they, say, they, they come to the point that they say, I just don't believe that anymore. They become a doctrinal apostate. Now here's one. Ouch. I call them spatial apostates. They're not moral apostates. They're not misbehaving. Oh, I still believe everything the Bible says. But the FBI couldn't find them on Sunday morning. They're completely invisible when it comes to being committed to a local fellowship. Very dangerous place to be. Examine yourself. Are you a moral apostate? Have you, have, you, have you decided, well, I can get by with this, that, or the other? Have you decided that, well, I used to believe those things, but I don't know that they're relevant anymore? Have you decided, well, it's really... And, of course, I'm, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I, I get it. You decided that it's no longer a necessary thing to be gathered with God's people. And then there's a fourth category. I'll call it an affectional or an emotional apostate. I'm, I'm being pretty moral, at least to the degree that people can observe. I still say that I believe the same things I've always believed, and I'm, I'm actually here every time the door's open. But my life is empty as empty could be. I have no true driving devotion, affection for God and the things of God. What a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Examine yourself. Judas said, I'm in. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. And yet, he failed. And he was the ultimate apostate. And Peter, although genuinely regenerate, genuinely born again, when he relied upon himself rather than upon God, he failed. And again, the disaster was great and the pain was real and the damage was done. And of course, Peter is what? The example not only of failure, but of the great faithfulness of God. How many times? How many times have we failed? How, how many times... Is, is our silence a testimony to our failure? We stand idly by and never say a thing, but yet God is faithful. So, again, Jesus said that to those disciples for specific reasons, but there's still things for us to think about as we examine our lives. He went on to say in, verse, in chapter 14, now he's just said, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny you, but don't worry about it. 
chapter 14, verse 1. I mean, he has just rocked their world. And he says what? Let not your heart be troubled. I think that is a universal, applicational principle that we should commit ourselves to. I told you, I, I get stinking, stomping, snorting mad about what's going on in our world. I really do. You know what Jesus says to me? Let not your heart be troubled. You have believed in me. Now, what does he explain to him? What do we need to remember? He went away. He went away to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. Our sin issues are resolved. Our sins are atoned for. He defeated death for us. He ascended to the Father. He returned and bore witness to the reality of His power over sin, death, and the grave. And He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there He intercedes for us. Why is your heart troubled? In the world, there's going to be trouble, but in your heart, but in your heart, there ought to be the resolve of peace because God in His Son, Jesus Christ, has resolved these issues for us. He goes on in chapter 14, verse 26. He said, I am going to send the Holy Spirit. Guess what? He did. He did. He did send the Holy Spirit. We call that Pentecost. We looked at that several months back. He did send the Spirit. It seems to me, and I think I've said this many times, that the distinctive of the New Covenant believer as compared to the Old Covenant believer is the full experience and expression of God's Holy Spirit indwelling us, which the Bible says is better than all the land grant, material, military, economic promises of power and prosperity that he made to Israel. My personal presence within you to guide you is far better than a bumper crop of wheat. It's far better than your goats not miscarrying. It's far better than a military that can go into a village and execute a scorched earth policy. And so, he has sent his Holy Spirit who teaches us and instructs us and allows us to look at our lives, at our world with a gospel-informed view. He, he goes on in verse 27 of chapter 14 and says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Now, I want to be very careful. I want you to hear what I'm saying, what I mean by what I, what I say. How many times have I told you? Now, when it comes to my physical health, I took my blood pressure medicine this morning. I put my seatbelts on. And yet what? God has numbered my days. It's a settled fact, Okay? My seatbelts and my lisinopril are not going to change what God has ordained. But in wisdom and as a means toward God's ordained end, I do these things and many other things. But our culture has demonstrated that we have no desire to find peace as God gives in the gospel. We have become absolutely obsessed with science, with technology, with politics, 
with wealth is that which will deliver on the promise of our well-being. And all of those things are passing away. At the end of the day, no matter how many vaccines they invent, no matter how many treatments for cancer they invent, no matter if they solve the riddle of ALS and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and all of these terrible things, and I hope they do, mortality will be with us until Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lords of lords and puts that final enemy to its ultimate and final death. We have the victory over death, but in this, in this world, death is going to come. It's a problem, and I hate it. Over the holidays, I was a part of two funerals. I'm tired of them. I don't like them. I don't want to be there. I'm tired of friends and people I love dying. It makes me mad. Okay? In the world, trouble. But I've said these things to you. Examine yourself. Know where you stand. Know that you stand upon the accomplishment, my accomplishment on the cross, what I went away to accomplish to prepare a place for you through my work on the cross. Upon my work of the cross, my ascension, I'm going to send the Spirit. I've sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is here to give you peace. And in the midst of that peace, chapter 15, you're going to abide in me. You're going to have a sense of my power, my presence, and you will be fruitful for me. Beyond that, specifically to them in chapter 16, verse 20, he said, your sorrow will turn to joy. What? You will sorrow when you see me hanging on the cross. You'll rejoice when I'm raised from the dead. And so I think, again, there's a principle there that our sorrows do last for the night. There are seasons of sorrow, but our joy comes and stays in the morning. Our joy is the Lord. Our joy is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, we have triumph. He is our victory. Let's go back to verse 33. I've said these things to you. He said a lot. Now, there's a lot more we could say about what he said. That in me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. Now, that, that, that may is, is a subjunctive. That's a conditional. And I, I, a conditional statement. But I want, I want you to understand that in the work of Christ, there is an objective reality. Paul writes of it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, having been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. That is a settled reality. That is good news for a troubled heart. That is good news for an anxious mind. Now, having peace with God can sometimes be a little bit distinct from having the peace of God. When I say the peace of God, I'm talking about a, a profound sense of peace, of well-being, of joy, of patience and adversity that comes through the knowledge of what Jesus has said and done and our faith, our belief, our embrace of all that He has said 
and done for us. And so I want you to experience this peace that Jesus accomplished for us. Notice here chapter 17 how he prayed specifically for those disciples that were there with him that night, but also for us, that we have eternal life that's been accomplished and given in him. That God has given to those of us who believe eternal life. We shall never die. We shall never perish. Not a hair on our head shall perish because we are in His care. We know that, we believe that, and we live because He is our peace. And even in adversity, it's interesting. And I occasionally get into discussions. I, don't want to, I really don't want to call them debates. If they're with other Christians... Oh, I, don't, I don't want the sense of, you know, we're angry or we're hostile to each other. We're trying to understand the truth of what the Bible has said to us, the truth of what Christ has accomplished for us. And when we speak of the sovereignty of God, and, and there, there's a line, it's not original to me, but I think it's a great line. There are too many people that are using the same Bible but a different dictionary when they read the Bible, okay? Because I hear too many people, well, God is sovereign. But, of course, their problem is with their but. Right? Right? Any of y'all ever but have a but problem? Their problem is with their but. And usually their explanation is, he sovereignly decided not to be sovereign. In fact, he's granted sovereignty to you. He's so sweet, kind, and wonderful, he wants you to be sovereign. He has evacuated his attribute of sovereignty and given it to you because you're better qualified to exercise sovereignty than he is. Isn't that great? That's good news. That reduced my anxiety just saying that. I finally got y'all to laugh. 19 years. Yeah. God is sovereign. That means, and I could, like I say, in, in our long life together, I can, go, I can go up and down the road. And I can pick out, I don't know everything about you any more than you know everything about me. But I, for most of you, very few of you, I couldn't put my finger on a particular season of suffering in your life. Something that was extraordinarily painful and difficult, and, and it's still something that, that bears witness in your life even today, right? If God is not sovereign, that suffering has no meaning. It's just random. It's just things go bump in the night, and hopefully you'll make it through. But God has designed our suffering to produce holy character in us. He has designed suffering so that we will become more Christ-like. 
so that we will display before a watching world that our God, we not only say our God is sovereign and rules over all and is the victor, we demonstrate that our God is victorious. And in Him, we have victory over every adversity. Indeed, back in verse 33, in, the, in me, in my realm, and, 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 and when we think of in me in, 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 a, in a spatial way, in Christ, in his, in his protectorate, in His care, and there's no greater reality of the protectorate of Christ than the visible local congregation. That's, that's why when we speak in terms of church discipline, and we speak of 1 Corinthians 5, that we remove someone spatially in a sense from the realm of Christ so that Satan may have his way so that he may learn his lesson and not lose his very soul. It's kind of the gist of, of that. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Now, Jesus has already told them, don't be surprised, they hated me first. You align with me, they're going to hate you just as much as they hate me because you are indeed the light of the world. The world loves its darkness. Uh, they're going to want to uh, persist in their darkness, and they're going to hate the light that you bring to bear that exposes their wickedness. So they are going to hate you. When we speak the truth in a decadent culture, we are inviting their hatred. We should not be shocked at that. We are going to suffer this kind of, of trouble, this kind of, of tribulation, in this world. And we're going to suffer, in a sense, even more than the unbelieving world. Unbelieving world, they have cancer, they have terminal diseases. The believer has sickness and terminal diseases. There's really no distinction between that. What the unbelieving world doesn't have is the animosity of the world aligned against them for our stand, for that which is true, for that which is right. That we cannot affirm that which is evil. That we call out that which is evil. And so in this world, because of that reality, we're going to have tribulation. We're going to experience, and I, so often I've categorized the realities of, of the fall, of sin's entrance into the, to the realm, into our world, in, in three categories. And that is, has to do with relationships. Now, I'm the easiest guy in the world to get along with. Some of y'all not so much, okay? Y'all understand that, right? That nobody should ever have a problem getting along with me. Now, y'all, the truth is what? We have to work at it, don't we? And if you don't think relationships are difficult, go home and talk to your wife, okay? You'll find out. It's very difficult, okay? Go home and talk to your children. It's difficult, Okay? All of those things are reality. We have to work at it. We have to try. We have to forgive. We have to grant grace. All of these things are realities. We're going to suffer from that. We're going to suffer from the deprivation of economic hardship because the ground is cursed. All of those things are realities. God did not promise economic uh, prosperity as a part of the new covenant. And then, of course, we've already mentioned the reality of mortality. 
that it, it is a, a, a principle granted deep within us. I had the privilege of spending a, an evening with my extended family. And um, I have a very large extended family uh, in, in Somerville. And uh, out of, um, on one side of my, my mother's side of the family, there were eight siblings. Well, there were ten siblings originally. Two died in infancy. Eight lived to adulthood. One is left. One aunt. And so the reality of mortality, and then as I look at, at, at a cousin that's battling uh, Parkinson's, and, and I see other afflictions that, in these people that are just playing out over the course of time, mortality is a reality. And so it, it, is, it is a part of the troubles of this world, and they are sure to come. But Jesus still says to us that in me, even in the experience of relational difficulty, economic hardship, and mortality, you may have peace knowing that this adversity is part of the plan of what I'm doing. As Paul wrote in Romans 5 as well, that because we stand in grace, we, we may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We may rejoice in our sufferings knowing that He's working in us endurance and producing character and producing hope. Doing these things in us that we need, that are necessary for life in this world. And so Jesus says to us, take heart. I have overcome the world. Back to chapter 14. Because he went away. He went away to the cross. And in that cross, in that event, he triumphed over the powers arrayed against him. He was the victor. Now it's interesting, that, that word overcome there. If you want to, put your little swoosh there. The Greek is nikaio. Nikaio. It comes into our language as Nike. Greek for victory. Okay? So when you see that little swoosh thing, the Nike ads that are everywhere, that comes from the Greek word that is used here for victory. Jesus has accomplished the victory over the world. And that, that verb, overcome, nikeo, is a perfect verb, meaning in his atoning, substitutionary work on the cross, it was a once and for all accomplished reality that has implications all through eternity. That what he accomplished reverberates in us and for us through all of eternity. And so we are to be encouraged. Take heart. Take heart. That, that, that's kind of a figurative way of speaking. It doesn't mean, you know, grab your blood pumper here. It means cowboy up. You know, I, I can be such a whiner. I really can. You know, the president, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the mayors, the police, the baby, I'd be such a whiner. Take heart. Take heart. Be courageous. I'm often reminded of the words uh, to Joshua. Be courageous. Do not let this word depart from your mouth. Keep my word before you. How do you have peace? How do you take heart? How do you live with joy? How do you live as the victor in Christ? Keep that word before you. Keep it in you. Remind yourself of it constantly, as we often refer to. Preach the gospel to yourself. Because Jesus 
has in his person, in his work on the cross, in his ongoing intercession, in his plan for his triumphant return to perfect his plan, he has overcome the world. John would write in his epistle, the world will pass away, but those who do the will of God abide forever. Isn't that? Just think about that for a minute. Everything that we're so hung up about in the here and now will not last. But we will. We will. John would also write in chapter 5 of that epistle, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And that goes back to the reality, the objective truth of what it means to be born again. By definition, by your vital relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, by your abiding in the vine, which is a fact of your conversion, you have overcome the world. It does not have authority and it does not have power over you. And this is the victory. There's our word, Nike again. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In fact, I think you could almost say, that the polar opposite of anxiety over the realities of adversity in our world is faith. I will trust you, the good shepherd, in days that you said would be like this, that I will experience the tribulations of a fallen world. I might even experience the afflictions of a world that hates me because of my stand for the truth. But I will be encouraged. I will take heart because you have overcome the world. And so I encourage you, you take this day, take these moments, evaluate the past, own up to the failures in the full knowledge of the faithfulness of God to be gracious to us in our expectation. Be confident. Be confident that we are the victors. That The Word of God is still true. No matter what the culture is saying about reality, about truth, it is the Word, it is God Himself that has defined truth. The Gospel is still powerful. We still have the witness of the Spirit that's among us and within us. God will demonstrate His faithfulness in this coming year. And because He's sovereign, we will participate in the realization of His purpose. And it is a good purpose for us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the word. It is a word for us. It is a word spoken long ago. But through all of the centuries, it remains true. It is a word to your people. It is a word that shook those disciples. And there are parts of it that should shake us, should shake us uh, out from uh, any type of of laziness, any type of of a defeated attitude, and cause us to evaluate who we are and what you have done for us and how we stand in the amazement of your grace. We thank you that we can take heart. We thank you that we have taken heart because you indeed have overcome this fallen world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.